0: Hey, folks, this is Rai Cooter. I'm a listener sponsor of KPFK Radio. I want you to know that. I want you to do something for me, and this is what it is. Support Free Speech Radio KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles simply by calling 818-985-5735. This is listener sponsor radio. And I don't know what I personally would do without hearing their news and their analysis and their music and all of the goodies that you will not ever hear any place else on the FM dial here in Los Angeles. So pick up the phone and take a moment to call 818-985-5735 and be a part of the Pacifica family. Make that big call now, as Charles Stahl used to say. Thank you so much. Point seven Los Angeles
1: From New York, this is Democracy Now.
2: This expedition request. Is, is for espionage, which is a political offence, and that's prohibited by the terms of the treaty. So, the very treaty that provides the basis for this extradition request prohibits the kind of request that's been made for Julian.
1: A critical hearing at the British High Court in the extradition case of imprisoned WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange wraps up in London. We'll speak with Assange's lawyer, Jennifer Robinson, and with Alan Rusbridger, the former editor of the Guardian newspaper, which worked with WikiLeaks to expose U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Then Haitian asylum seekers go to court over abuse by federal agents at the U.S.-Mexico border.
2: So the whole lawsuit and it is really in solidarity of the people who came and asked for safety, the people that the administration have decided to disappear by expelling and deporting them, by silencing their voices and their stories.
1: We'll speak with Gerline Joseph, head of the Haitian Bridge Alliance, all that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The U.N. Agency for Palestinian Refugees, UNRWA, warns that it has reached a breaking point amidst the U.S. and other countries halting funding and repeated Israeli attempts to dismantle the life-sustaining organization. In a letter to the president of the U.N. General Assembly, UNRWA head, Philippe Lazzarini, said, quote, I fear we're on the edge of a monumental disaster. He also noted, quote, There have been more children, more journalists, more medical personnel, and more U.N. staff killed than anywhere in the world during a conflict, unquote. This comes as Israeli attacks throughout the Gaza Strip continue. At least 40 people were killed after coming under Israeli shelling on residential homes in Deir Abalah in central Gaza. Survivors gathered outside Al Aqsa Hospital to mourn their loved ones who perished in the attack, including this father of a baby born just two weeks into Israel's assault. <laughs>
3: The missile came down and killed 10 of us, and the whole house got destroyed. My mother is in intensive care. May God be kind to us. Thank God, thank God, my child. The child was born during the war, day 13 in the war.
1: Meanwhile, Israeli negotiators are taking part in truce talks in Paris, according to local media. At the U.N. Security Council, the head of Doctors Without Borders blasted the U.S. for its repeated vetoes of Gaza ceasefire resolutions. MSF Secretary General Christopher Lockyer addressed the 15-member U.N. body Thursday.
4: Children who do survive this war will not only bear the visible wounds of traumatic injuries, but the invisible ones, too. Those of repeated displacement, constant fear and witnessing family members literally dismembered before their eyes. These psychological injuries have led children as young as five to tell us that they would prefer to die. The people of Gaza need a ceasefire, not when practicable, but now. They need a sustained ceasefire, not a temporary period of calm.
1: President Joe Biden said on social media Thursday, quote, the overwhelming majority of Palestinians are not Hamas and Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people, unquote. Biden did not, however, comment on his refusal to call for a permanent ceasefire, ongoing U.S. funding for the Israeli military or his administration's pending congressional request for another 14 billion dollars to fund Israel's assault on Gaza. In a major victory for the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, Norway's pension fund has divested their entire Israel bond holdings. Four Norwegian universities have also decided to cut ties with Israeli institutions linked to the IDF. In the U.S., the student government of the University of California, Davis, voted to divest its $20 million budget from, quote, companies complicit in the occupation and genocide, unquote. They cited companies like McDonald's, Sabra, Starbucks, Airbnb, Disney, and Chevron. Here in New York, thousands of protesters led by the group Jewish Voice for Peace marched from the United Nations to the offices of apac That's the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee Thursday. The activists also took aim at elected leaders who've received hundreds of thousands of dollars from AIPAC, including House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. This is anti-war protester Patrick Brent.
0: I'm here today as uh, not only as an American Jew, but as a combat veteran uh, who is now an anti-war activist, among other things, to uh, speak out against uh, AIPAC and in a larger scope Zionism and how it misrepresents Judaism. And my demand is for... U.S. politicians to cut ties with AIPAC uh, and to very good, to get more serious about what their contingents say than what APAC has to say as far as demanding a ceasefire, an immediate ceasefire, a permanent ceasefire as a beginning toward a liberated Palestine.
1: The mother of deceased Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny says she was finally able to see her son's body. Russian authorities, who ruled Navalny died of natural causes, had prevented her from seeing him for nearly a week following his death. Lyudmila Navalnaya says authorities are now attempting to blackmail her into holding a secret burial away from public view. She posted this video on YouTube.
0: I'm recording this video because they started threatening me. Looking me in the
1: eye, the investigators say that if I don't agree to a secret funeral, they will do something with my son's
2: body. The investigator, Voropayev, openly told me, time is not working for you. Corpses decompose. I don't want special conditions. I just want everything to be done according to the law. I demand receiving my son's body immediately.
1: Meanwhile, President Biden met with Alexei Navalny's widow, Yulia Navalnaya, and his daughter, Dasha Navalnaya, a student at Stanford University in California, Thursday. The U.S. has announced more than 500 new sanctions against Russia today. On Wednesday, Biden reportedly called Putin a, quote, crazy SOB while at a San Francisco fundraiser. The Kremlin has accused Western leaders of hysteria around Navalny's death. The U.N. human rights chief warned there's no end in sight to the war in Ukraine nearly two years after Russia invaded on February 24, 2022. The U.N. said over 14 million Ukrainians have been forced to flee their homes in the past two years. About a third of those have since returned home. The U.N. says it's confirmed over 10,000 civilian deaths, though the true toll is likely much higher. Ukraine is upping pressure on the U.S. and other allies to supply more funding and arms after Russia captured at the eastern city of Avdivka last week. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba offered an ominous take on the current state of the war at the Munich Security Conference.
4: The
2: era of peace in Europe is over. And every time a Ukrainian, Ukrainian soldiers withdraw from a Ukrainian town because of the lack of ammunition, think of it not only in terms of defending democracy and world-based order, but also in terms of Russia getting Russian soldiers getting few kilometers closer to your towns
1: New York Judge Arthur Engoron denied Donald Trump's request to delay payment of the $455 million he was ordered to pay last week for illegally inflating the value of his business assets. Trump had requested a month-long delay before the civil fraud penalty is enforced, but the judge noted Trump's lawyers quote failed to explain, much less justify any basis for a stay unquote. Trump will now have 30 days to postpone and appeal the ruling. Earlier this week. New York Attorney General Letitia James said she's prepared to seize Trump's New York properties if he fails to come up with the money. In reproductive rights news, a third Alabama fertility clinic has halted its in vitro fertilization program in the wake of this week's Alabama Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos are children. The decision, which has been met with outrage from families, legal groups and medical providers, opens doctors and patients to possible wrongful death lawsuits. Biden's campaign manager, Julie Chavez Rodriguez, said, quote, what's happening in Alabama right now is only possible because Donald Trump's Supreme Court justices overturned Roe v. Wade, she said. In India, protesting farmers are observing a black day today following the recent death of a young farmer after police fired tear gas and water cannons to disperse demonstrations. Farmer unions are calling on all Indians to hang black flags from their homes and cars to express their anger and solidarity with the farm workers who've been marching toward New Delhi to demand fair prices for their crops. Protesters vowed to continue.
2: If we don't get the minimum support price, then we might die here facing bullets or we'll die back home due to poverty. So it is better that we stay here fighting for our rights. Earlier this
1: week, the social media platform X admitted it took down a number of accounts and posts related to the farm worker movement following an order by the Indian government. Senegalese President Macky Sall said Thursday he'll leave office April 2nd at the end of his presidential term. This comes after he attempted to delay this month's election by 10 months, plunging Senegal into political turmoil and triggering accusations he was trying to hold on to power. Senegal's highest election authority issued a ruling the poll delay was unlawful, which Saul vowed to abide by.
0: I consider having finished my work at the head of the country at the end of my term. It is up to all these components of the dialogue and to the Constitutional Council in the last resort to see how they will continue the process. But what is certain, there will not be a vacuum. We cannot leave a country without a president. That's obvious.
1: President Saul did not, however, announce a date for a new election in Senegal. Talks between civil society groups, political parties and candidates are scheduled to take place next week. In Kenya, the Ogiek indigenous people are fighting their ongoing eviction from their ancestral Mao forest. Kenyan human rights advocates have taken legal action to block further evictions and accuse Kenyan authorities of serious violations. In at least the past decade, over 100,000 people have been evicted. Many have scattered across the forest area, living in makeshift structures made of nylon bags as the government refuses to provide alternative housing. Community members have also recently led protests in Nairobi as they petition for their right to inhabit the forest.
3: Maybe Many of the community people might even die because they, they depend with this food. They don't have any alternative. Also, there are people, forest dwellers, they don't know to stay at town, at marketplaces. That's why you find our, those elderly people are staying inside the forest and they are saying, unless they come and kill us inside here, we won't go out because this is our land.
1: And human rights groups are warning the government of Panama is not prepared to help transfer some 1300 members of the indigenous community from their homes on a small Caribbean island that's disappearing due to rising sea levels. Gardi Sioub is off Panama's northern coast and has faced some of the worst impacts of climate change. Indigenous people on the island have requested support from the Panamanian government since at least 2010 and are scheduled to move to a relocation site on mainland Panama by the end of the month. Human Rights Watch says the Panamanian government has yet to make clean water, sanitation services, or health care available at the relocation site. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A critical hearing in the extradition case of imprisoned WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange wrapped up at the British High Court of Justice in London Wednesday. Assange's lawyers asked the court to grant him a new appeal in what's likely his last chance to avoid extradition to the United States. The two judges overseeing the case reserve their decision, and a ruling is not expected until next month at the earliest. Julian Assange has been charged under the U.S. Espionage Act and faces 175 years in prison for publishing classified documents almost 15 years ago that exposed U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. If the judges rule against Assange, he can ask the European High Court of Human Rights to block his extradition. However, the British government already signed an extradition order in June of 2022. As the two-day hearing was underway this week in London, hundreds of protesters gathered outside the court in support of Assange. Julian Assange did not attend the two-day hearing himself, nor did he watch remotely because of he is in poor health, according to his lawyers. He's been held in London's Belmarsh Prison since 2019. Prior to that, he spent seven years holed up inside Ecuador's embassy in London. Ecuador had granted him political asylum. For more, we go to London, where we're joined by Jennifer Robinson, human rights attorney, who's Julian Assange's lawyer. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Jennifer Robinson. If you can talk about the significance of this two-day hearing held by Britain's high court and what you think came of it. Uh, We're very sorry we can't hear Jennifer Robinson, so we're going to go to break and fix the... Ah, I've just been told that that we can go to her. Uh, Jen, if you can start off by talking about the significance of the High Court uh, hearing this week.
2: This is the potentially Julian's final appeal in the United Kingdom. Uh, we've sought permission to appeal. It was refused at the end of last year. And if we're unsuccessful this week, he has no further appeals in the United Kingdom. Uh, but I think the court was receptive to the arguments. So we heard arguments this week about how his extradition should be barred because he's revealed evidence of US state criminality. So we heard a long exposition from our council about the, the impact of the revelations from WikiLeaks about torture, about war crimes, about human rights abuse in the context of the U.S. wars on war on terror, and that this, that he's being prosecuted and punished for having revealed evidence of U.S. state criminality which should prevent his extradition. The judges were very engaged with that. They were very concerned about the arguments around the death penalty. So one of our arguments has been about if Julian said that won't happen, if he's extradited, the judges were very troubled by that. They were also very troubled by the free speech argument. So we heard a long exposition in court about what the European Court of Human Rights would do if confronted with dealing with Chelsea Manning's case, uh, the military official who is alleged to have leaked materials to WikiLeaks, and how the court would treat Julian as a publisher, and and the ruling that they they as they set out it would be protected activity under European jurisprudence, and on that basis he shouldn't be extradited. So I think the judges were very troubled by the case, and, and but it remains to be seen how they'll decide. Focus. It was tired arguments. Uh, they really didn't, they weren't able to grapple with the, the important free speech questions in the case. And, and, in fact, one of the judges asked US counsel when they were making their submissions, well, what would happen in this jurisdiction if a journalist received information from the intelligence services of wrongdoing by the intelligence services and published it in the newspaper? papers here, are you saying that there would be no free speech protections? And the US government case, they couldn't couldn't answer the question. So it shows to me that the judges in this jurisdiction are concerned about the precedent that this case is setting. It's a point that we've been making for many years that this precedent, if Julian is extradited, is, is basically saying that any journalist or publisher in this jurisdiction could be prosecuted and extradited to the United States. The judges are clearly troubled by those free speech questions in the case. And also troubled, the U.S. government's case was, well, it's not likely he'll be subjected to the to the death penalty. And the judge asked the question, well, is it possible he could be? And they said yes and, and then said, well, what protection is there against it? Why why is there no assurance? And they said, well, there is no assurance. So there's actually, I think that there's quite a lot of grounds for the judges to go on here. So I, I was quite surprised that the U.S. government was unable and had not prepared, was not prepared to answer some of these questions.
1: Jen, I wanted to ask you about their focus on new information that um, your team presented to the high court. And I wanted to go to a clip of Democracy Now! back in 2021, speaking with investigative reporter Michael Isakoff with Yahoo News about his piece, Kidnapping, assassination and a London shootout inside the CIA's secret war plans against WikiLeaks, where Isakoff details how the CIA considered abducting and murdering Assange while he took refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy in London to avoid being extradited to Sweden. This is what Michael said.
3: As is well known, uh, WikiLeaks had been on the radar screen of U.S. intelligence for years, going back to its publications, you know, uh, in 2010 of the State Department. Uh, cables, the uh, Afghan war logs and Iraq war logs uh, that had been provided by Chelsea Manning, uh, and of course Assange's role in publishing the uh, Russian purloined DNC emails and Podesta emails during the 2016 election. But what really set uh, Mike Pompeo, the new CIA director, off was that Vault 7 leak. This was on his watch. This was his agency. And while Pompeo. Pompeo had been somewhat dismissive of the Russia allegations uh, uh, and Assange's role in that. Uh, The Vault 7 uh, leak uh, focused his energies on getting back at uh, WikiLeaks and Assange at dismantling the organization. I was in uh, the room when Pompeo gave that speech in early uh, April 2017, where he described for the first time uh, WikiLeaks as a non-state hostile intelligence service. I thought and assumed, like many, it was some kind of rhetorical talking point, a grabby line that Pompeo had come up with. In fact, that designation um, uh, in internally open the door for the CIA to launch and plan all sorts of operations that didn't require a presidential finding and didn't uh, uh, and wasn't going to be briefed to Capitol Hill these were offensive counterintelligence activities uh, Pompeo uh, uh, there, there's abduction plans to, to basically a snatch operation to take Hassan from the Ecuadorian embassy uh, there was talk of assassination, although we want to be clear, that never uh, was forwarded to the White House. That was internally within the CIA. The abduction plans were, as part of a a much broader, multi-pronged CIA uh, attack on WikiLeaks that included stealing computers, surveillance of uh, WikiLeaks associates, sowing discord among its members. And so that was Michael essakoff uh, laying
1: out their findings. Um, Jennifer Robinson, can you talk about what the abduction and assassination plan was and what um, your team told the two judges in the high court?
2: Well, you've, you've just heard about the Yahoo News expo- uh, revelations about the CIA plot to kidnap and kill uh, Mr. Assange. We also had witness evidence from a, a, a protected witness who, provided evidence that inside the embassy there had been plans to attempt to poison Julian, that they'd uh, made plans to potentially leave a door open so someone could come in and kidnap and kill him. Uh, This evidence, we, we didn't have the evidence of the CIA plot before the last evidential hearing, so we've sought permission to admit that as fresh evidence, which provides support to some of the broader arguments that we're making about the way that Julian's being punished for revealing state criminality, because, of course, there was, as you'll all remember, uh, under the Obama administration, the Obama administration chose not to indict Juliana Assange. There was an ongoing grand jury investigation, but there had been a decision not to prosecute. The decision to prosecute came from the Trump administration and came only after WikiLeaks had published the CIA materials in 2017. And we started to see Mike Pompeo come out and use language like WikiLeaks as a hostile non-state intelligence agency. Jeff Sessions soon came out as Attorney General saying it was suddenly a priority to prosecute Assange for these historic publications. And we say that this shows both the political nature of the prosecution and the fact that this was pursued by the Trump administration in retaliation for those publications on the CIA as part of this broader plan, including a plan to kidnap and kill him and we also say that this shows the danger, the extreme risk that Julian is going to face if he's extradited to the United States. I think it's important to remember that we won the case uh, a few years ago on the basis of the oppressive prison conditions Julian would face if he was placed under special administrative measures, or SAMS, together with his depressive illness and his autistic diagnosis that the medical accepted medical evidence before the court in this country is that he would be caused to commit suicide. The US then offered a conditional assurance to say, well, you can extradite him, we won't place him under those conditions unless he does something to deserve it in the future. And who decides whether or not he'll be placed in prison conditions that the medical evidence shows will cause his death is the intelligence agencies, and we would have no ability to judicially review that. That is a really serious situation, and it's why we are so concerned about him being extradited to the United States in the context of the fact the CIA plotted to kidnap and kill him.
1: Last week, Australia's parliament overwhelmingly approved a motion calling for the release of Julian, who's an Australian citizen. The resolution was introduced by Australian MP Andrew Wilkie, who traveled to London this week to attend the hearing. He spoke outside the courthouse about the case and referenced the infamous collateral murder video shot in 2007 that shows a U.S. military Apache helicopter in Iraq firing on civilians and killing 12 people, including two members of Reuters staff.
3: Who remembers collateral murder? Who can forget that grainy black and white image of an American attack helicopter gunning down innocent Iraqis and Reuters journalists? Who can remember that? And we have this madness. But the man who told the truth, who provided hard evidence of US war crimes, he's the one in front of a court. It should have been the pilots of that helicopter. Broken out, at least now the Australian Prime Minister has finally stood up and given a clear, strong signal to the Americans that enough is enough. Regardless of what you think of Julian, This matter must be brought to an end, the extradition must be dropped, the charges must be dropped, he must be busted out of Belmarsh, he must be allowed to be reunited with his family. Because Julian Assange is the hero here, not the villain.
1: So that's Australian Member of Parliament, MP Andrew Wilkie. Um, the Across the political spectrum in the Australian Parliament, they voted to call for the release of Julian Assange. Australia is U.S. ally. Jennifer Robinson, you're an Australian citizen. Can you talk about the significance of this and Andrew Wilkie flying for a day to London to be there at the high court hearing?
2: Well, first, we were delighted that Andrew joined us in court and he's been one of Julian's strongest supporters over many years. We've been working together in the Australian Parliament to gather this kind of support. But what we saw in terms of the the, the Australian Parliament passing that resolution, in my career I don't think I've ever seen the Parliament pass a resolution on an individual case of this nature calling on foreign governments to release uh, an Australian citizen and that's precisely what happened in the case of Julian Assange. So this is a clear signal. we've, We've already heard from the Australian government. We know that the Australian Prime Minister has been raising this with President Biden, saying that enough is enough and he ought to come home. We've now got this unprecedented showing of political support from our parliament. And it's time that the United States starts to listen. We are in a special relationship with the United States. You've now heard it is the will of the Australian government, the Australian parliament and the Australian people that Julian Assange be brought home. And, and, you know, this is not just about an Australian citizen. So, of course, the Australian government is now acting and we're, we're really... Grateful to the Prime Minister for his principled leadership on this and for, for his support in this matter. But this is also about American press freedoms. This is about your constitution. This is about journalism in the United States. And this case will set it, is already setting a dangerous precedent. It's having a chilling effect on national security and public interest journalism in the United States. And if Julian is extradited and goes on trial, Under the Espionage Act, this is a case which is going to set precedent, which criminalizes journalistic activity and will be used against the rest of the media in the context of an election where we could well see another Trump presidency. This should be of grave concern, not just for us as Australians, because he's an Australian citizen, but what it means for you and your press freedoms. Finally, Jen Robinson,
1: why wasn't Julian Assange in court or even watching by video? And have you spoken to him since the high court hearing?
2: I have managed to speak to him over the phone, and my colleagues visited him in prison yesterday. Julian has been really unwell. Uh, We know the risk of um, suicide as a result of the medical evidence this is really the sharp end of the case. This could be his final appeal. We will, of course, seek to apply to the European Court of Human Rights to protect him from extradition if we're unsuccessful, but that's not a guaranteed measure. So we really are at a sharp end and this is having a massive toll on his mental and physical health. He's already been incredibly unwell as a result of the many years he was held in the Ecuadorian embassy, unable to go outside to exercise. Now more than five years in a high security prison where he's effectively in isolation. So this is having a huge toll on him that he was not even able to attend in person or online to be able to follow his own appeal hearing. It goes to show just how unwell he is.
1: I want to thank you very much for being with us. Jennifer Robinson, human rights attorney, has been advising Julian Assange and WikiLeaks since 2010. We will also link to all our interviews with Julian Assange. Inside the Ecuadorian embassy in London and outside at democracynow.org. When we come back, we go to Alan Rusbridger, former editor of the Guardian newspaper that worked with WikiLeaks to expose U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Stay with us. <laughs>
0: I wanna be free
1: Be free by the kinks. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. On Monday, April 5th, 2010, Julian Assange released a shocking video. The now infamous tape, which WikiLeaks titled Collateral Murder, was shot in 2007 from a U.S. military Apache helicopter flying over New Baghdad, Iraq. It shows U.S. forces killing 12 people, including two Reuters employees, Saeed Chama, 40 years old, and Namir Noor-Eldin. Uh, he was an up-and-coming Reuters videographer. The video comes from the Apache helicopter.
3: Let me know when you gather. Light them all up. Two traffic, two safeties. Come on, Fire.
4: Raiders. Right Keep shoot. Keep shoot. Let's match the two things. Bushmaster, us match the two things. We need to move time now. All right, we just engaged all eight individuals.
1: Raiders driver Sayed Shama survived the initial attack. He's seen trying to crawl away as the U.S. Apache helicopter flies overhead. U.S. forces then open fire again when they see a van pulling up to evacuate the wounded schma. Bodies. Where's
2: that van at? Right down there by the body. Okay, yeah. Bushmaster, crazy horse, we have individuals going to the scene, looks like possibly uh, picking up bodies and weapons. Hey, we need to stop that, so we need to get down there. We Uh, hey,
0: request permission to uh, engage. Picking up the wounded. We're trying to get permission to engage. Come on, let us shoot. A Bushmaster. This is Bushmaster 7,
3: go ahead. Roger, we have a black uh, shoe, uh, bongo truck picking up the box. Request permission to engage. Bushmaster 7, Roger. This is Bushmaster 7, Roger. Engage.
0: have a van in the middle of the road with about 12 to 15 bodies. Oh, yeah, look at that, right through the windshield.
1: <laughs> that clip from the collateral murder video released by WikiLeaks in April 2010. The van that had come to help the wounded uh, was a father taking his two children to school. They were critically wounded in the attack as well. The video's release was followed by the publication of hundreds of thousands of digital records from the U.S. military, dubbed the Iraq War Logs and the Afghan War Diary. In November 2022, five major newspapers that worked with the WikiLeaks the New York Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, El Pais, and Der Spiegel released a joint letter calling for an end to Julian Assange's prosecution. They write, quote, Obtaining and disclosing sensitive information when necessary in the public interest is a core part of the daily work of journalists. If that work is criminalized, our public discourse and our democracies are made significantly weaker, unquote. For more, we stay in London with Alan Rusbridger. He was the editor in chief of The Guardian for 20 years. He's now the editor of Prospect magazine. He recently wrote a piece that was headlined, Enough is Enough. It's Time to Set Julian Assange Free. Alan, welcome back to Democracy Now!, um- that video that we just saw, Reuters had attempted to get the video released because it showed the death of their two employees, Namir Noel Din and Syed Shema, and they couldn't get it released. It was only when WikiLeaks released it that they were able to see the evidence of what happened, not to mention of the Iraqis on the ground. Can you talk about why you're getting involved with this case, why you think it's so significant?
4: Well, that video and the battle to have it released uh, is at the heart of what WikiLeaks was doing. Uh, you have to remember that initially the U.S. government lied about uh, what happened there, in addition to refusing Reuters access to the video for three years. They first of all claimed that the uh, the helicopter had come under attack from insurgents, and their second line of defense was that that all the people who were killed were in fact terrorists or insurgents. Neither of those was true, and that is why you need national security reporting and the ability to uh, sometimes delve into matters that are considered secret by governments. Uh, and that's why I'm so concerned about the the attempt to use this really heavy legislation, the Espionage Act, which has no defense, uh, to uh, prosecute Julian. Um
1: Can you talk about the argument that we hear and the corporate media, certainly in the United States, repeated over and over that he's not like newspapers like yours? You were the editor of The Guardian or The New York Times, though he worked with all of you uh, because he released names. He endangered people. Can you respond to that?
4: Uh, I certainly can. He he uh, he wasn't the first person to do that. There was another website that released material, and it's now become apparent that he actually went to some attempts, certainly to tip the U.S. government off uh, before he felt the necessity to release them. Now, I mean, we had disagreements about that at the time. We weren't we weren't in touch, uh, and I don't think uh, the five newspapers knew of his attempts to uh, alert the authorities. But I think it, it, it's really a, a smokescreen for the way that, certainly since the Edward Snowden revelations, which I was also involved in, the US government, the Australian government, the UK government have all tried to tighten up uh, the laws and their punitive behaviour towards journalists to try and um, create a situation where no one will ever do that kind of reporting again. And that, that video that you kick this... Um, interview off with is one illustration of why that shouldn't be allowed to happen.
1: You right, Alan Rusbridger, why should we care? There's no shortage of people who don't much. Um, they don't like uh, Julian Assange. It has to be conceded he has a unique ability to lose friends and alienate people. Many in the media don't believe he's a proper journalist and therefore won't lift a finger to defend him. It's not like you're a friend of his, Alan.
4: No, we've, we've, we've had well-publicized fallings out.